Well, we do this every Sunday. Do you mind opening your Bibles? And if you turn them about three-fourths of the way back to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're in John 19 today. And uh, as we said earlier, we're going to be talking about Jesus' death on the cross. And that's what this passage is about. If you haven't been with us, we've been in this series almost all year long called Encountering Christ. And we're nearing the end of it. We're going to finish the last Sunday just before Christmas. But if you look up here in the banners, I'm, I'm, my wife said to me the other day, Jeff, have you seen the banner this week? And just so thankful for what Teresa and Danielle have been doing artistically and just helping us think about. These are all these different encounters that people had with Jesus in the gospel, and they're coming together in a very powerful way. So again, we're thankful. And as we read about these encounters, it's our prayer that we're going to encounter Jesus too. Now, I tell you all that to tell you that John, who wrote this gospel, this week, what we're going to read, very personal for him. Very personal for him. Because as far as we know, he's the only disciple that didn't run away that stayed with Jesus at his cross. So when he talks about this, when he writes about this, this isn't just info to him. This isn't just facts, details. Next, this happened. Next, this happened. No, it's got a whole spirit about it. Like he remembers it like it was yesterday. Now, John was the last disciple to die. He lived to an old age. He was the only disciple that wasn't martyred. Um, but because of that, he became a leader in the church for many years, and he now writes this gospel somewhere, somewhere between 40 and 60 years after this happened. So now he's an old man. And as he's writing about this, what I find amazing, and when I've talked to people, I've seen this happen hundreds of times. Even though it happened many years ago, it was like it happened yesterday. And John, knowing that the other three gospels have already been written, doesn't try and compete with them. None of the Gospels do. The Holy Spirit leads each one of the Gospel writers to include important details for reasons that he has for them. John adds, if you're following along in the notes, John adds vivid details and firsthand testimony. We're even going to see that at one point in this passage, he's going to say, I give this testimony to you because I was there. I saw it. I experienced it. It wasn't just facts to me. And I'm praying that as we read about his encounter with the cross of Christ, that it'll enrich our own encounter with Jesus and our encounter with Jesus at the cross. And that as a result, we will live differently this week. We will live differently in the days ahead. And we'll live differently as we walk through this season of grief. So before we do that, though, let me just make a couple comments about this. My dad's a pastor, and he was a good one when he was in... The pastor is a church, local church. He's still a good one as he shepherds other people. But my dad and mom taught me the story of Jesus on the cross since I was wee high. It's a privilege I better never take for granted. I know some of you, you're sitting here and say, I don't have that. I feel like I'm so far behind. I don't have the same starting point. Here's what I want to tell you. Even with all that, every time I heard it, it didn't impact me. It didn't change me. I could repeat it back to my parents and I appreciated it, but it didn't change me. Here's what I was thinking the whole time. What does a guy dying on a hill in Palestine in the Middle East have to do with me in Illinois? I wasn't trying to be hard. I just didn't get it. There was no connects. I didn't understand how it would affect decisions I make during the week or how I'd rearrange my life and my plans. Does that make sense? So I know that just because we look at this passage today, it doesn't automatically mean that it'll click in for us. We need the Lord to open our eyes. 
We need the Lord to take off what sometimes seems like scales on our eyes so that we can see this with the eyes of our heart as well. So I'm going to be praying for that. But there's one more thing. And that is some of you are going, Jeff, this service is like already heavy. So like, why are we going to study something so heavy? Are you out of your mind? Yes. (laughs) But the reason why is, as I said earlier, I believe that by looking at what Jesus did on the cross, it'll help us look at every heavy thing in our life differently. And that's my prayer. And I want to read to you a quote. And some of you, when I read this quote to you, are going to go, Jeff, do you know how long this quote is? This is a long quote. Are you aware of that? I am. I am. And I just want to tell you, I picked it knowing it was long, but I think you'll see why when I read it. Here it is. It's up on the screen. John Stott, who I've admired greatly. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectively before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain, He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. And it's my hope that you'll see that God was doing something important on the cross that we need very much. Let me pray. Now, Lord, as we, we study John's testimony, I know even he wrote it so that we might believe, that we might be enriched in our lives by reading it. Would you let that happen? I'm not smart enough, powerful enough, charming enough to help anybody know you. I can't take the scales off, even my own eyes. I need your help. So I pray now that you would reveal these things that are spiritually discerned. And I pray you'd reveal yourself through the cross. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, are you ready to start walking through the passage? Here's what John's encounter at the cross shows. The first thing I hope you'll see is that what he remembers vividly is that Jesus carries his own cross. If you're following along in the notes, Jesus carries his own cross. Let me read verses 16 and 17 of John 19. We pick up from where we left last week with Pilate. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified, so the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. Those are four powerful words, friends. He went out to the place of the skull. Some of you have been there in the Middle East, and you know that there's these two kind of sockets in the ground that, when seen from a distance, look like a skull to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. 
And here they crucified him. Now, Jesus, it says, carries his own cross. And I don't know how much you've read about crucifixion. We don't practice it here in the United States. But Rome, who were experts in uh, causing people to suffer and be humiliated and pay for their crimes, invented crucifixion. But it was such a terrible thing that they would not allow any Roman citizen to be crucified. It was that horrible and wretched. But listen to what Kent Hughes writes. Little is said about Jesus' pitiful route to the cross because such processions were as common as funeral marches. And by the way, the other gospel writers already do fill in some of those details. Evidently, Jesus was placed in the center of a company of four Roman soldiers. The crossbeam or patibulum of the cross was placed on his torn shoulders and it usually weighed over 100 pounds. Now remember last week we heard that he was not just whipped, but flogged. In other words, with a kind of leather whip where the different thongs had sharp objects so that when they hit his back, they would grab. and It would tear skin off and it would create all kinds of wounds. Jesus had already been flogged, so now imagine laying something like that on his shoulders. And this summer, I, I had shingles all down my right side, and, and I remember the pain, and I can't imagine, after having a flogging, having a 100-pound weight laid on his back. But that is, that's what's going on, carrying his own cross. One of the things that I just want to remind you today is that throughout his ministry, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he or she must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Everyone knew that that didn't mean get a necklace and wear a cross. Everyone knew that when you were carrying a cross, you were on your way to your death. You were the end of you. And Jesus is saying, you need to die to yourself in your own ways and your own will and follow me if you're going to follow me. But what I love about Jesus, friends, and I'll only spend a moment on this, Jesus never asked us to do something he wasn't willing to do himself. He carried his own cross, and now he asks us to follow his example and follow him in a world that says, live for yourself. Jesus says, that's a dead-end road. You'll regret it. Follow me. Second thing I hope you'll see is that John vividly remembers that Jesus is crucified between two criminals. Jesus is crucified between two criminals. Let me read verse 18, where it says, Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. So what does it mean that Jesus was crucified between two criminals? Rome was always looking for ways, again, to just make sure people paid the price for what they did. And so in a way, by putting Jesus in the middle, they were saying to everybody, look what kind of person this is. Look who he belongs with. The riffraff of society, the scum of the earth. And they, they crucified him right in between. And Isaiah 53, 12 says, he was numbered with the transgressors. He was counted with the rebels. Praise God. I'm so thankful Jesus, although he wasn't a rebel, although he wasn't a transgressor, was willing to be identified with the likes of you and me. And that day on the cross, he was crucified between two thieves, two criminals. When we were building this building, we had a decision to make about how we would display the cross. And one of the things we decided to do was to display three crosses out front to remind us as a church that Jesus was crucified between two criminals 
one who responded to him and one who died hating him. And it reminds us as a church that we exist to hold up the message that Jesus Christ has died for the whole world and that people are responsible for their response to him. But we never want to keep we never want to stop holding up the cross as an opportunity and invitation to every person, no matter where they've come from, no matter how much they've sinned. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. I'm so glad. The third thing I hope you see is that John's encounter at the cross is that he remembers Pilate's sign that was fastened to the cross in three languages. He remembers Pilate's sign that was fastened to the cross in three languages. Let me read verses 19 through 22. Pilate had a notice, a sign prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. We talked about Jesus being a king last week. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. In other words, this was only a couple hundred yards from the temple. It was just right outside town. You could see it easily. And a lot of people passed by, a lot of traffic, because the city was crowded for the Passover. And it says, the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Aramaic was the local language of Hebrew people. It was Hebrew kind of language. Latin was the language of the Romans, and Greek was the international language. Much like English is seen and spoken in different places around the world, that was Greek in that day. And then it says, the chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. John remembers that people from every language had an opportunity to see the Savior. And we exist as a church so that people from every language, every nation, every tribe, every skin color, every gender can know Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful he is an international savior. The fourth thing that John remembers vividly is the soldiers divide up Jesus' clothes. The four soldiers, excuse me, divide up Jesus' clothes. Let me read verse 23 and 24. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into how many shares, friends? Four shares. Okay. One for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot, in other words, by gambling. Who will get it? This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. John is saying, that's Psalm 22, verse 18 being fulfilled right there. Even though it was written a thousand years before, huh, that's going on right now. Now, I want to just stop for a second and just make couple connect the dots things. Jesus was a poor man. All he had left was his clothes. And they took him. What does that mean if he doesn't have any clothes? What was he wearing on the cross, friends? Nothing. The Romans not only had devised ways to torture people and create pain and hurt them, they also intended to humiliate them publicly as a way of showing anybody else that thought about breaking the law, look what happens to you. So it's a quieting thought for me that Jesus is hanging naked on the cross for us. You know, in the United States, we're proud of the fact that we're not so ashamed of nudity anymore, and we're much more comfortable with it, but in the Middle East, to be naked is a shameful thing, unless you're with your most intimate family members, and 
And so can you imagine how shameful this was for Jesus and how shocking it was for his mother to see him humiliated this way? It's hard. But the other thing is, if that's not hard enough, can you imagine that while you're going through all of this, there's four guys at the base of the cross that don't give a rip about you and they don't even think you matter and they're just taking your clothes. Wow. Friends, there are still people that are unfazed by what Jesus did. And I've been one of them. And Jesus did it anyway. The fifth thing I hope you'll see that, G- that John remembers vividly is that Jesus provides for his mother. Jesus provides for his mother. Verse 25 through 27, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved. How does John, by the way, refer to himself in John's gospel? Does some of you remember this? Does he ever give his name? No, whenever John's listed, it's John the Baptist. But who, how does he refer to himself? As the disciple whom Jesus loved, or this disciple, or he's just real modest. He never says his name in the gospel. It's just a, an author technique. So he's, he's talking about himself. I remember being near the cross, standing near his mom and the other ladies, And says that when Jesus saw this, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus provides for his mother. He was kind of busy. He had a few other things on his mind. He had plenty of excuses not to do that. Jesus provides for his mother. Amazing. He should have been thinking about himself, but in his most painful moments, he's still thinking of others. This is a challenge in our generation, isn't it? How do we care for our parents? There's all kinds of complexities to that. And I I just want to tell many of you that have cared for your parents, I'm so impressed with the way many of you have done that. What the Bible says is that if we're Christians and we do not take care of our families, if we take care of everybody else but we don't provide for our own families, we're worse than an unbeliever. It is one of our responsibilities. It is one of the things he calls us to do, and Jesus modeled it even in his most agonizing moments. The sixth thing that I hope you'll see is that John vividly remembers Jesus' last words, I am thirsty and it is finished. Jesus' last words, I am thirsty and it is finished. Now, before I read this passage, I just want to stop and say that if you read all four of the Gospels, what you discover is that Jesus was on the cross for six hours, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Probably because of the flogging, he died before the other two criminals because he lost even more blood than they had lost. But what happened is, is that during the time from 12 noon to 3 in the afternoon, the other Gospel writers tell us, and John doesn't include it because he knows the, other, the Christians already have it, is that something eerily strange happens. It becomes dark over the whole land. So dark, black darkness, that even the cockiest person around the cross takes note that something's not right. And they wonder what's going on. And the whole universe is going into convulsions as Jesus is dying on the cross. A few weeks ago, we read from the Apostles' Creed, and there's a strange phrase in the Apostles' Creed that some of you have asked me about. It says, 
that Jesus descended into hell. Now, I don't claim to fully understand all that means, but what I'm about to say, again, is not, it's my best shot. I don't claim that this is on the Lord's authority, but I'm trying to explain what happened is during that dark time, what was going on during those three hours? Do you remember that Jesus also fulfilled another line from Psalm 22, verse 1? My God, my God, why have you, what's the next word, friends? Forsaken me. The Bible says is that God made him who had no sin. Can you imagine being in the presence of someone like that? To become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, a transfer was going on. Before we even gave a rip about Jesus, God was already acting on our behalf. And he transferred all the sin of the world on Jesus. Friends, a lot of us marvel at what Jesus went through physically. It is nothing compared to what he went through spiritually. I want to read what someone wrote. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No human has ever known such terror. A billion crucifixions cannot equal the pain, the curse Christ experienced for you and me in those black hours. I believe that he experienced hell for three hours because hell is God forsakenness forever. And Jesus experienced it for three hours that we don't have to experience it forever. At the end of his death, it comes to this passage, his last words. John comes to them, I am thirsty and it is finished. Look at verse 28 through 30 with me. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit one commentator said the picture of bowing his head makes you realize that he said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The same phrase is being used here. Now he bows his head on the Father's chest as he dies. And when he dies, he says these things. Now let me just say a couple things. The Romans, soldiers at his feet, had a cheap wine that they would drink to pass the time. Jesus had turned down the wine that was offered to him at the beginning that was mixed with gall that was meant to deaden the pain when he was crucified. He turned that down because he wanted to be completely coherent and in his right mind through all six hours of this agony. He knew that God had a plan for him to fulfill and he wanted to stay on it. So he went through it without painkiller and he went through that and then at the end when he says, I am thirsty, most medical doctors will tell you that what the crucifixion created was not only physical pain, but it made a person's body on fire. So that when they're crying out, I am thirsty, they not only are feeling that, but they're helpless because they're nailed to the cross to get something for themselves to drink. So Jesus is completely at the mercy of these soldiers. They take this cheap wine and they hold it up to him on a sponge, on a stick, and he drinks it. And I believe the reason he drank it is so he could say the next thing. So his throat was clear enough to say, it is finished. And the other gospel writers imply that Jesus screamed this. He yelled it at the top of his voice as a shout of victory. It is finished. And with that, he gave up his spirit, and bowed his head and died. Wow. He was in complete control every step of the way. 
They didn't take his life from him. They did not murder him. He gave his life. Look at John 10, what it says. This is so powerful. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So Jesus did that. The last thing John vividly remembers is that he sees scripture being fulfilled. Notice three times in verse 24, 28, and 36, this happens so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now what that is meant to get all of our attention is to say, look, for over 1,000, 1,500 years, God has been prophesying that there would be one who would come that would be the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord, God's Son, who would be the only one that could restore our relationship with God. And Scripture's been prophesying, and it's like John's going, check, 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 check. Jesus is the one. Don't miss it. Look to him. If you trust in anyone or anyone else, you're in serious trouble. Don't miss him. Don't miss him. Don't miss him. And he's screaming that to us today. On my cross, Jesus says, I finished what God sent me to do. And that, he fulfilled scripture. Now, I don't have time to talk about this very long, but I want to tell you that he basically, in verse 31 through 37, let me read it. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, Deuteronomy 21, by the way, forbid them from just letting bodies be like that because it was a decay on the land. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it is given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. What I'm going to mention is very violent. The only way a person could breathe was use their legs to pull themselves up once their arms got so stretched out and exhausted. So what the Romans did in order to help the Jews celebrate their Passover with nobody's body hanging on a cross outside the city is they took an iron mallet and they came by and busted the legs of these men. Can you imagine that moment? And they did it so callously. They'd done it lots of times before and they had no problem doing it. Then they come to Jesus and they can tell they're experts in death. They can tell he's dead. But in order to confirm to Pilate that the execution has been carried out, a Roman soldier that day did something that wasn't very common. He took a long spear and he shoved it underneath the rib cage of Jesus, piercing Jesus' heart and the pericardial sac around his heart. John says, I, I vividly remember what happened at that moment. Blood and water flowed out. Now there's a lot to that. And some people have taken tremendous liberties of what that means. It's possible that his heart ruptured under the weight of carrying our sin and yours. He died of a broken heart. It's possible. But I believe that what John's really trying to say, because by the time he wrote this gospel, there were already heresies arising up that said Jesus wasn't really in a human body. He just looked like it. And also that he didn't really die. He just swooned and then later came back and claimed resurrection. He says, no, I saw blood and water come out. 
Anyone medically knows that when a person dies, the fluids in their body separate. The plasma from the hemoglobin separates. And I believe that what John is saying is, he really was dead. If you prick your skin or you cut yourself, what happens? Blood comes out. Not blood and water. But when you're dead, after a time when you're dead, those separate. Jesus really died. And out of his side, something happened. So what happened? What did Jesus finish on the cross? What did he accomplish that could possibly help you and me, that could change our life, that could rearrange our life? I want to spend the last few minutes, and some of you were here for Good Friday when I talked about this. So if you want to hear this in more detail, I'm just going to quickly go through it. But that night I said that the finished work of Christ RPOs us. There's so much more that it did than that, but I want to just talk about these three things. It RPOs us. Do you see that in the notes? The first thing that Jesus' finished work on the cross does is it rescues us from coming wrath. It rescues us from the coming wrath. Oh boy, Jeff, that's a fun word. Our world doesn't like to talk about the wrath of God. Christians sometimes don't like to talk about the wrath of God. I don't like to talk about the wrath of God. But God talks about the wrath of God so we don't shove it under. The Bible says is that God's wrath is his righteous anger against evil and sin. Your sin and mine. And John Stott says something that I think is helpful in case when you picture God being angry, you picture some angry father who flies off the handle. He says, the wrath of God does not mean that he is likely to fly off the handle at the most trivial provocation, still less that he loses his temper for no apparent reason at all. For there is nothing capricious or arbitrary about the holy God, nor is he ever malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. His anger is neither mysterious nor irrational. It is never unpredictable, but always predictable, because it is provoked by evil and evil alone. The wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. In short, God's anger is pulls apart from ours. And what he's saying is this, is that God is opposed to sin in any person, any way he finds it. I'm so glad he is. Don't, aren't you glad that God hates evil? What kind of parent would possibly be called loving if they didn't hate something that would destroy their kid? What kind of friend would possibly be a friend if they didn't have wrath over something that was destroying their friend? And God has a holy wrath against our rebellion, our indifference, and our sinfulness, and he hates evil in the world, and I'm so thankful he does. But the Bible says is that because of that, his wrath is coming. His wrath is going to come. There is a day when we'll have to pay the piper, when we'll be responsible and accountable for everything we've done. And none of us, the Bible says, is righteous enough to stand before God's wrath. So the Bible not only says that, but it says that God did something about this. The Bible says is that he allowed his wrath to hit his son. So on the cross, do you wonder why Jesus is going through much? If you ever wonder whether or not your sinful choices that you might make flippantly or pridefully matter or make any difference, oh, they do. They cost someone a lot. When the wrath fell on Jesus so that it didn't have to fall on us. The Native Americans, years ago, when they would see prairie fires, knew that the prairie fires were so wide and so hot and so powerful they could destroy everything in their path. 
So they learned that if they ran ahead and burned a place of dead grass that was large enough and big enough, that when this incredible prairie fire came that way, that if they would stand where the fire had already been, the fire could not touch them. Friends, I say this with so much gratitude this morning. When the Lord asked us to put our trust in what Jesus did for us on the cross, he's saying, stand where I have already stood. Take your stand by faith in what I've done for you so that the fire will not have to fall on you. Praise God. What if I don't? John 3.36, look what it says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Read this last phrase with me. For God's wrath remains on them. Do you believe that? Do we believe that as a church? Or are we soft peddling that? Are we going, well, I don't think so. Are we smarter than God? Are we trying to rub off the edges of the truth? We better be careful. I love this verse in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. They tell how you turn to God from idols and serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Read this line with me. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. When you take communion in just a moment, thank him for RPOing you. The second thing he did is he pays our ransom and sets us free to serve him. He pays our ransom or he pays our penalty. He pays our debt and sets us free to serve him. The Bible says everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So the picture here is that we've either been kidnapped by sin or we've become slaves to sin, and we can't set ourselves free. So Jesus paid the price that you and I could never pay, and it was huge. But only Jesus could pay it, but he paid it with his blood. And that's why I love the song we sang earlier that said, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. He pays our ransom and sets us free to serve him. The last thing he does RPO is he opens the way to God and new life with him. Earlier we talked about how Zechariah 12:10 was fulfilled when they pierced his side they will look on the one whom they've speared they pierced Zechariah 12:10. You know what I love about Zechariah 12 is it comes right before Zechariah 13. Have you ever seen Zechariah 13:1? Look at this on the on that day a fountain, this is written 500 years before. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Why did he say, I saw blood and water flow out? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And Jesus, when he was pierced, what flowed out of him was not the end, but the beginning of a whole new possibility flowing towards us from heaven. And he opened up the possibility for healing and hope and the Holy Spirit living in our lives and resources that we could never have when we go through the hardest things in life because he died and opened the way to God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So we're going to take communion in just a minute, but before we do, can I ask you one closing question? Is Jesus' death on the cross, this is one you have to ask yourself, is Jesus' death on the cross having any impact on my life? Have I allowed it to RPO me? Am I allowing it to help me rearrange my life and take up my cross and follow Jesus and live in the purpose he has for me? Have I turned from going my own way and by faith 
place my faith so that I stand in the place with the cross and what he's done for me so that the wrath will never have to come my way and also so that I can live to serve Christ with my life from now on. That's what he wants for us. I'll tell you one more thing before we take communion. It is finished is written in the perfect tense. Some of you are going, come on, Jeff, I'm not in school today. This is a day off. I want to just give you a quick grammar lesson. Do you know what perfect tense means? Completed action that has ongoing effects. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus died on the cross, some people go, well, when it was over, it was over. Oh, no, no. He opened up something that has the power to affect the way you live today and tomorrow. He wants to RPO you by his grace and assure you that he loves you more than anyone could ever love you. What are you going to do with Jesus? Now we take communion. He started this whole idea of communion the night before he was crucified because he knew we'd forget that he RPO'd us. So he says, I want you to remember. I know you're going to have times of spiritual amnesia, so I want you to remember when you forget what I did for you so you can stand in that security. You can stand in that new identity. You can stand when the finger of the evil one accuses you and say, how could you ever think you're a Christian? Because of what Jesus Christ has done on my behalf and what he has done alone, I can be what he wants me to be. So we're going to take the bread and the cup in just a moment. And today we're going to ask you to take it uh, individually. So you may want to pray before you take it, but when you're ready, just take it and then you can place your cups. Both the bread and the grape juice are in two cups. Separate them carefully and then when you're done, you can put it in the plastic container in front of you. But we're going to then sing in just a little bit together corporately. But take time to think about what Jesus has done for you if you're a follower of Christ. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ yet, then we would just say, you know, that can change. By what you heard today, this is for you too. And you can change your mind and you can put your trust in Christ today. Today could be the day of salvation for you. And if you're ready to do that, then take communion when it's passed. But if you're not ready, please don't feel pressured or forced by us. No one will look down on you if you pass the tray, but respectfully pass it until you're ready to take it with faith in Jesus and think about your relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me pray before we take communion. Now, Lord, I pray that you'll help us think about and remember you and what you've done and we'll love you back and we'll trust in you and we'll surrender anything that's standing in the way of us trusting you fully. Use this time. Help us remember you the way you want to be remembered. Amen.